www.idabol. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I've been there. D- <laughs> podcast where each week we look at a great character and a great story i'm joseph dorowski and i'm todd mack how are you doing todd i am doing well i'm totally delighted by the opportunity to talk about this novel tonight all right well let's just go ahead and tell our listeners what we have today we're going to be talking about meg murray from the 1963 novel a wrinkle in time written by madeline langle that's how we've decided to pronounce that is that right yes now is that we've decided to do that or one of us has verified that it wasn't me. <laughs> I haven't verified it. Um, that's how I always heard it. That's how I've heard it as, if, as well. If you're unfamiliar listeners, it is L apostrophe E-N-G-L-E. So Langle is what we're running with there. This marks the second uh, author with an L apostrophe name that we've uh, that we've discussed. We also Louis, did Louis, Louis L'Amour. Yes. Yes. Uh, listeners, if you're unfamiliar, a quick spoiler-free... Uh, synopsis of this is this is the story of a group of children who go on an adventure of fantasy slash science proportions let's just say (laughs) uh they end up on other planets and it's really interesting how they do that and they're trying to save their dad there's a dad that needs to be saved it's a classic children's book uh that i had never read until a couple years ago I'm really interested to get your take on this. Okay. Well, uh, before we do that, uh, we have a special announcement, listeners. This is the first ever Protagonist Podcast promotional month. The month of April is a promotional month on our Patreon. Have you guys ever thought, hey, I like this this Protagonist Podcast, and I want to donate money, but I'd also really like to get more out of it by buying a topic. But five bucks is too much? Well, guess what? Discount month. It is now $3 to buy a topic. Yes, any new patron subscribers who sign up for $3 a month, you can pick out any topic. And returning patrons, pre-existing patrons, don't worry, we have not forgotten about you. Those who have already bought a topic, we have a special deal for you guys. Yes, those who have bought a topic already, who are already donating at the $5 per month, if you increase by one measly dollar per month, you get two new topics of your choice. They may be spread out some in our schedule when we get to that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but if you go from five to six dollars, you get two new two new topics. So if you donated five dollars and then said to yourself, man, I feel like I, I really wasted those five bucks on <laughs> buying the hero's journey. <laughs> then Or a gothic romance. <laughs> or 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 anything that you spent your five dollars on. Here's your chance to buy two new topics. Double your opportunity for satisfaction. And, and for new subscribers, if you leap in at the $6 level, you get to pick out two topics as well. Again, mm-hmm. we, we uh, traditionally, whenever we get a new patron, we try and do that one right away. The, if, if we do get an influx, we may spread these out. If we don't, yours will be first up. <laughs> if we just get like one or two of you that do this, don't worry. You'll still be at the front of the line. And for those of you who were donating but not at $5 a month, you also get a special promotion. Any existing but not... Topic buying donors can increase by one dollar to buy a topic. Yeah, we know there are a few of you out there who are donating one dollar a month or three dollars a month. We appreciate it. We love you. Yes, thank you. And if you just up it by one dollar a month, there's your topic. I think we need a name for our supporters. I like protagonauts. 
I don't think it's going to catch on. <laughs> wow. I did not. Ex- okay. That's an option. Uh, listeners, if you have any other options <laughs> for names for our supporters. <laughs> uh, right now, Protagonauts is our front runner. Because I feel like. Because they're I, on this journey with us. Yeah. I feel like I cannot let this conversation go any further without, without warning you that I was just talking to a recent uh, fan of the show, my cousin Andrew who reads lots and lots of Russian literature. And he's, <laughs> he's very interested in having us in having us talk about crime and punishments. <laughs> oh boy. I, I, you know, that one has been on uh, like uh, somewhere on my to read list. So if it gets bumped up to the front, so be it. All right, Andrew, you're out there listening. <laughs> you can manipulate our to read list. It is, it is your chance to get in at $3 and buy crime and punishment. <laughs> I, my worst nightmare for this is that we get like crime and punishment, brothers Karamazov, oh, what was and, Anna Karenina, uh, Anna Karenina. <laughs> War was, and Peace. No, what was the Dickens one that we were joking about? Have either of us ever read it when we were when we were reading uh, Thursday Next? There was one. There were there were, there were references to some Dickens novel. We were oh like, no. yes, and neither of us had read. No, have you read? No. no. All right. <laughs> Any patrons who want to make us read it? <laughs> so it's okay. your chance to to buy a topic on the cheap. All right, and that that goes from. Today, when you hear this, to April 30th. If you are a Patreon supporter as of April 30th, you get this deal. You're in. All right. Well, hopefully uh, some of you will take us up on that. Uh, But for today, uh, we are talking about a book that we chose amongst ourselves, A Wrinkle in Time. And Todd, can you tell our listeners why we're talking about A Wrinkle in Time? Well, it was a dark and stormy night. (laughs) Literally how this book opens, if you're wondering. That was not. <laughs> the opening sentence. Not yes. a reference to Snoopy or uh, what was the classic writer? The uh, oh. uh, It Was a Dark and Stormy Night is an often mocked and parodied phrase written by English novelist Edward Bulwer-Lytton in yes, the, the opening se- sentence of his 1830 novel, Paul Clifford. The the only good thing he ever wrote, I think. <laughs> and every year there's a Bulwer-Linton sentence contest where people submit the worst first opening sentence to a potential novel. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that that's the worst opening sentence, but uh, I um, I read a lot of fantasy novels when I was a kid. Um, I had read uh, The Hobbit. I had read Lord of the Rings. I had read The Book of Three, which is another really great um uh, fantasy novel, and I had a friend that worked at the public library, and I was telling her that I, w- I had run out. There was no more fantasy for me to read. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, have you heard of this book called The Wrinkle in Time? And I said, no. And so uh, she gave it to me, and I was totally hooked by the f- in the first chapter. I loved it. But Todd, what's the real reason that we're reading this for the podcast this week? <laughs> oh, because I've assigned it to my students this semester. Is that <laughs> yes? Because it's on your reading list for your students, and it's you need my to students. refresh to freshen yourself up for it. Yeah, I probably haven't. I don't think I've read it all the way through since I was a, since that I was that little kid. <laughs> so it's been you know twenty some odd years. So I figured it was it was a good opportunity for a refresher. It was one that you hadn't read or weren't super familiar with. Yeah, I uh, so. I knew of its existence. Like I remember hearing other kids talk about it, but I, for whatever reason, I'd never read it until, uh, when we got married, this was one of the books that my wife brought into our book collection, which <laughs> is heavily skewed in my areas of interest, <laughs> our, our book collection. It's fairly significant. And most of the titles probably came from me. Uh, I mean, my wife reads a lot, but she wasn't as much into the buying. She was more into the getting from the library <laughs> to read. <laughs> 
Um, but there was, I, I can't even remember why. I think I just noticed it was on the shelf and I was like, oh, you know, I've never actually read that. So I read it. I want to say it was probably like five or six years ago, but, uh, that was my first time reading it. And I just remember thinking, this book is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then I reread it for today and my reaction was somewhat similar. <laughs> there's a lot of weird things about this book, but, uh, I think there's also a lot of really fascinating aspects to it. And I think there's, there are some reasons for why it's weird that I appreciate, even as I kind of say, now, you know, th this, this narrative goes in unexpected ways. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, a few bits of trivia. Do you want to share those, Todd? Well, first I was going to remind our listeners that today's podcast is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30 day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. All right. Great ad read, Todd, because you took that out. I'll, I'll tackle some of the trivia here. All right. So A Wrinkle in Time was rejected by dozens of publishers and was actually given up by Lingle's agent. Like she just, or the agent gave the manuscript back. It's like, this isn't selling. <laughs> and then it was accepted for publication by a friend of Lingle's mother that <laughs> met, uh, met Madeline Lingle at a dinner party. And there she mentions she had a manuscript and eventually after it was published, this won the Newbery medal and is now considered a classic of, you know, uh, children's literature. So as always, the lesson is that it is important who you know, not how well your book is written <laughs> when you're trying to get published. <laughs> it just amazes me. It was, I think the official number that I read today was 26 rejections. Yes. Uh, well, I saw uh, a couple different and then I found, I found out that the, the reported number has varied over the years from, uh -huh. from her, but I, I'm comfortable saying a couple dozen minimum rejections. That's unbelievable. Um, this novel frequently appears on the American Library Association's list of most challenged books. And I looked around, uh, briefly, <laughs> like I didn't do a deep dive, but some of the reasons for being challenged, it was oddly both for being pro and anti-religious. I love been, that. <laughs> it has been challenged. <laughs> I love it. Um, a made for TV movie was produced in Canada and aired in America on ABC in 2004. And in an interview with Newsweek, when Langle was asked about if the film met her expectations, she said, yes, I expected it to be bad. And it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, like just reading through this, I don't know. It's hard to me. It's hard for me to imagine somebody reading this novel and thinking, you know what we should do? Make a movie. Well, Todd, wait till the, you get to the next bit of trivia. <laughs> Because uh, it has been adapted as an audiobook. That one's pretty straightforward. It's also been adapted for the stage. A couple different versions of stage plays have been done wow. by it. A very well-received graphic novel was done uh, only a few years ago. It was adapted as an opera at one point. And right wow. now, Disney is working on a film that's going to be directed by Ava DuVernay. And that is in pre-production at this very moment. Is Ava DuVernay? I'm sorry. I'm just gonna. I'm just going to uh, express my ignorance here. She Ava directed DuVernay. Selma. If you're familiar with Selma, okay. all right. So nice. Uh, got some award recognition for Selma, and then she kind of had her pick. She almost became the director of Marvel's Black Panther, but then decided to do uh, a Wrinkle in Time instead. Wow. And this I, would be a live action film. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh, they're wow. kind of trying to. It's, they started looking for other kind of epic children's literature after their Alice in Wonderland adaptation did really well, the Timber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is one of the books that they got the rights to in that wave of like saying, we got to latch, you know, buy up some, some children's epics. 
And I didn't even know this, but this is the first in a five-book series. Did you know that, Todd? I did. I have not read any of the other okay. books. It's called The Time Quintet, and the other books are A Wind in the Door or A Wind in the Door. I haven't read it, so I don't know. <laughs> I believe it's wind. wind. I think it's wind, yeah. Okay. <laughs> a Swiftly Tilting Planet. Which I've heard waters. of but never read. And, well, uh, Sw- Swiftly Tilting Planet is a pretty famous book. Okay, and an acceptable time. And those were all released between 73 and 89, so actually, like, over a decade after this book, the second one came out. At one point, I owned all of those and only ever read this one. Producer Andrew. <laughs> Chiming in to let us know he hasn't read all the books he owns. <laughs> I read this in, like, Oh, have you read grade. all the books that you own? I have, uh, well, like, my academic books I've probably read, like, chapters from. I, I Like, I haven't read all of my Norton Anthology of Theory. <laughs> Oh man, that's, that's like I own a lot pages. of books. I own a lot of books that I've never read. Oh yeah, well, I'm sure there's some. I mostly I, the just majority feel, of them I feel read. guilty about them. Yeah. My wife and I have had some debates about um, whether our next priority needs to be uh, a new bookcase or if I can thin, keep getting books. or thin the herd <laughs> or, or thinning the herd. Yes, <laughs> I've, I've never uh, had. A, I've never leaned towards thinning the herd. <laughs> I've done some, I've done, I've done some herd thinning in my life and it actually feels pretty good. It's kind of cathartic. I have a bunch of books right now sitting on my shelf sort of glaring at me. <laughs> Give us a title of one book that's glaring at you. Um, El Asidio. <laughs> Lutin Patriarca. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're mostly, um, uh, Spanish and Catalan books. Oh, okay. The Franco, uh, uh, the, the, the biography of Fran- Francisco Franco. <laughs> well, it's been on there for a long time. Yeah, but felt the need to really dig into that one. All right. Uh, well, no. well, listeners, if you are interested in A Wrinkle in Time, this is a classic. It will be available at all libraries, despite those challenges to, <laughs> to having it in public libraries. It's still there. But you can also uh, order this through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. It is available on Amazon in several formats, I believe. And if you do that, we just get a little bit of a kickback from Amazon. So please use protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon for all your Amazon purchases. But it is now time, Todd, for you to provide the full synopsis for this novel. And I am so excited that I did not have to write (laughs) this synopsis. Okay, here we go. This is the story of Meg. She is a terribly awkward teenager. On this particular dark and stormy night, uh, Meg is worried about everything. School is terrible. The other kids tease her, and she gets into fights. Her father is out of the picture, uh, missing somewhere. Uh, Her mother is a beautiful and smart scientist. Her twin siblings are athletic and well-liked. Her little brother, Charles Wallace, is an interesting kid... But he's, he's very smart, and he is able to read Meg's mind. Uh, no, really, he reads her mind. <laughs> and his mother's. Uh, so on this uh, night, uh, Meg is worried because she feels like the hurricane outside will blow her house away. Hello, Wizard of Oz. So she goes downstairs, and uh, Charles Wallace has anticipated her arrival and put milk in uh, on, on the stove for cocoa. Then the mother shows up, and they talk. Then a woman called Mrs. What's-It shows up. She is very eccentric. She, just as she <laughs> prepares to walk back out into the storm, she tells Meg's mother, there is such thing as a tesseract. This shocks Mrs. Murray. Uh, the next day uh, goes just as poorly as the day before for Meg. Uh, she has more trouble at school. She comes home frustrated. And so Charles Wallace invites her to go for a walk into the woods to meet his, fr- his new friend, Mrs. What's-It, at her house. Uh, so they take their dog, and they walk into the woods, but before they get to the haunted house, they meet a boy named Calvin. 
I should mention that the dog's name is Fourth and Brass just because. <laughs> it's worth mentioning. Uh, Calvin is a couple of years older than Meg. He's 14 or 15, so we guess that she's 12 or 13. They ask him why he is out there in the woods. Calvin says he just had a feeling he should be there. Charles Wallace does this kind of mind-reading thing on Calvis, and he realizes uh, – on Calvin. And he realizes that Calvin has some special abilities similar to his own. He decides to take Calvin with Meg to visit the old ladies in the haunted house where they live in the woods. So Mrs. What's-It and a couple of her friends, Mrs. Who and Mrs. Witch, live in a house that everyone says is haunted in the woods. Uh, when they get there, they meet an old woman whose name is Mrs. Who. She says she's delighted to meet all of them and that it was her and her friend's idea to bring Calvin into the picture. She tells them it's not time yet, but it will be soon and that they should take Calvin home and feed him. This is all very cryptic, um, and Meg is not quite sure what is going on, uh, but they follow uh, instructions and head back home, and so Calvin is very happy to be in their home. He treats Meg very kindly. There even seems to be a little a little possible <laughs> budding romance between the two, uh, or at, also, least, uh, he, at least good friendship. I was going to say, he's also remarkably complimentary towards her mom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, I think uh, I think he 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 sees potential in Meg, you know. <laughs> so uh, he meets Meg's mother. He's very kind to her. She's very kind to him. He, it seems like he's had a hard life. Um, and uh, Meg offers to walk Calvin home. On their way home, uh, she tells him about her father. Uh, he used to work for NASA and then for the government. He's a physicist with multiple PhDs. Um, and then uh, the government sent him on a mission, and he never came back. And uh, Meg takes off her glasses for some reason, and Calvin tells her she has beautiful eyes, uh, which is always a great, uh, a great move by, uh, by, on the part of a young man. Uh, then Charles Wallace shows up and tells them it's time for them all to go find their father. Charles Wallace is accompanied by Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch. Suddenly, Meg, Calvin, and Charles Wallace are transported through space to another planet far, far, far away from our Earth. Just so you uh, know, when, when Charles Wallace said our father, that was an exclusive pronoun when it came to calvin uh <laughs> yes it's his father yeah. <laughs> and, and meg's, meg's father. father not calvin's not father. calvin's yes uh suddenly meg calvin and charles wallace are transported through space to another planet far from our earth it's a beautiful planet with meadows of flowers and extremely tall mountains now things start to get interesting <laughs> uh mrs <laughs> what's it turns into a centaur with wings She's a giant uh, – a horse with a man's torso and wings. So she was uh, some kind of um, – like, like, a, like a bag lady witch kind of blend yes. was how she'd been described. And then she turns into this magnificent centaur with wings. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and she tells the children to climb on her back, and then she flies them up, 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 way up into the sky to the top of one of these mountains, which is actually sort of in space now. Um, and they're able to look out into space, and she shows them and this they're, dark... They're breathing, breathing through flowers. They're breathing the oxygen, yes, so, because they've so gathered some flowers that, let the, that allow them to breathe. Uh, and she shows them this dark shadow floating far out in space. And the children know that this shadow is evil. They just know. Uh, and then they fly back down to the valley, and then Meg asks if that shadow is what their father is fighting. And the ladies tell her, yes, that, that is. And so they finally explain to the children, how they're traveling through uh, space using a shortcut, a fifth dimension that they call uh, Tesseract. Then they travel to meet a woman called the Happy Medium, which seems a little on the nose to me. But uh, she has a crystal ball that she uses to show the children their own planet Earth, 
which is shrouded in this same dark mist that they've seen. It has been the women inform the children for centuries, but also for centuries human ha humans have been fighting it. So this dark mist has been shrouding Earth for centuries, but for centuries humans have been fighting it. People like Jesus, Einstein, Madame Curie, and others have all engaged in the fight. Mr. Murray is also fighting, but he's now trapped in a planet that has fallen completely to the darkness. Are we okay so far? Yeah, uh, real quick. Um, did we so, – so we mentioned that Mrs. What's-It became a centaur, right? Yes. Do we uh, – was it already covered in the book where she came from? Because um, <laughs> Bag Lady to Centaur is not her first transformation, we find out. No, I can't remember where that comes in. I don't know that I actually even oh, okay. even uh, wrote it anywhere. They are uh, – they're stars. Yes, they are stars that have stopped being stars and become Bag Lady centaurs. Yes. <laughs> Which is awesome. Yeah. So uh, so now Meg is mad, and she uses her anger as motivation to go and save her dad. Uh, the three ladies leave the children on a planet called Kamazots uh, with instructions to go into town. So the ladies can't go there on their own into onto Kamazots. For some reason, they're sort of blocked. Their powers are useless there or something. Uh, and so the children, they tell the children, go into town. On their way there, the children walk through some suburbs – uh, where they notice that all the children playing in the street are doing everything in lockstep rhythm. So they're bouncing balls, and all the children are bouncing exactly the same, and other kids are jumping rope, and they're jumping rope all in rhythm, and it's very eerie. I didn't, so the description of them is like they're walking down the street, and then they slowly realize something is eerie. But I imagine if I walked down the street where all the children were jumping rope and bouncing balls in perfect rhythm, I would notice right away. Yeah. <laughs> immediately. Oh, boy. Twilight Zone. I think the effect, though, is really cool. I, I, I really yeah. – I love this, this, uh, this scene. Yes. No, I, I think the effect is very well described. It's just like – it says slowly Meg started to notice something was off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like really slowly? Um so they stop a paper boy and ask him about the town. He mentions something about papers, that everybody needs to have papers, and that these kids shouldn't be out and about. Um, the place seems peaceful. Uh, there hasn't been violence for hundreds of years, but the kids are really spooked. So they get into town, and they find this huge building called Central Central Intelligence. <laughs> and uh, Calvin has a feeling that if they go in that building, they will be in terrible danger. But they don't really have any other options, so they go into the building. <laughs> They're like, we have to find our dad. He's probably in the most dangerous place, so we'll go there. <laughs> so they go in the building anyway, and eventually they find themselves before a man with red eyes sitting on a platform. He speaks to them in their minds, and he invites Charles Wallace to read his mind to see uh, like who he is or sort of where he is. They get the impression that this this man that's talking to them isn't really – the man that's talking to them, but that some entity is speaking to them through, through this man. So the, the voice promises the children that if they let Charles Wallace read this guy's mind, he will tell them where their father is. Meg thinks this is a bad, bad idea. Uh, but eventually she gives in and Charles Wallace, uh, sort of connects with this guy. And then he becomes totally blank. And the man with red eyes takes over Charles Wallace's mind. So Charles Wallace is in this trance. His pupils have completely uh, contracted. So he has he, his, he just has these blank blue eyes, and he his voice his jaw becomes slack, and his voice becomes uh, Flatter, monotone, I think it says. flat. Yeah, 
And uh, so now Charles Wallace is leading them in this trance, and he takes Megan Calvin for a walk through the building, lots of monologue. Uh, but Charles Wallace sums it up like this. Why do you think we have wars at home? Why do you think people get confused and unhappy? Because they all live their own separate individual lives. I've been trying to tell you in the simple poss- simplest possible way that on Kamazots, individuals have been done away with. Kamazots is one mind. It's it. So capital I-T, it. And that's why everybody's so happy and efficient. To which Calvin replies, this is evil. <laughs> Uh, Charles Wallace continues to lead the other two until they reach a large transparent column, and inside of that column they see their father. Uh, at first, Meg has no way of getting to him. Then she remembers that Mrs. Who had given her a pair of spectacles and instructed her to use them only as a last resort. Uh, this feels like the, the right time, so she puts them on, and she's able to walk through the wall, uh, the transparent wall, into her father. And then they escape from the column, but Charles Wallace is still controlled by it. Not the column, but it. it. The, uh, capital I, <laughs> it. Capital I-T, it. I will try to say that like it. Uh, So Charles Wallace leads them out of Central Central Intelligence Building into another building. Uh, This one is round, and it's permeated by this rhythmical pulse. Um, And they enter a room at the center of which there is a large disembodied brain. This is what controls everyone on the planet, and it controls Charles Wallace as well. This is it. It is is a giant brain. Uh, Meg fights as hard as she can against the pulse, trying to overpower her brain. Uh, Eventually, she recites the Declaration of Independence, and her mind clears. Uh, Then Charles Wallace says that on this planet, everyone is equal. So she's citing the Declaration of Independence, and she says, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And he says, that's right. On this planet, everyone is equal. To which Meg replies with this, she has this revelation, and she says, like is not equal. And this breaks the power of the pulse long enough for Mr. Murray to tesser them away. So they jump through essentially a wormhole and leave. Uh, But they've left Charles Wallace behind. Uh, Mr. Murray is not as good at tessering as the Mrs. W's. Uh, And when Meg wakes up, she's totally paralyzed, and they're on this unknown planet. Uh, Mr. Murray and Calvin are there, but Charles Wallace has been left behind on Camazots because it would have killed him if Mr. Murray had transported them, him as well. If he's like under the in this trance, if he had been transported, he would have died. So they left him behind. Meg is furious, but she has this frozen body and she can't do anything but fume at her father uh, for leaving her little brother behind. Then some aliens. I I really. (laughs) These are aliens with tentacles. Um, They have no eyes. They have lots of lots of arms. Uh, Their hair on the like on the top of their heads is all tentacles. They're kind of terrifying at first. But they're actually really, really kind. They're just like goodness and, and kindness. Um, and they, interestingly, they can't see anything, but they understand the universe way better than Meg does. Um, and there's some, kind of some interesting conversation about sight and seeing and stuff. Um, but they nurse back, Meg back to health. One of them is called Ant Beast. That's not like that's the name Meg ends up giving this alien creature. Yeah, well, okay. like, I mean, you should call me Ant Beast. That's what I go by. It's like Meg's trying to think of a name and naturally settles on Ant Beast. Well, because she says she's they're, they're sort of thinking. Or to if each you other. read it the way I do, Aunt Beast. Yes, <laughs> I guess Ant Beast sounds like uh, like some a different kind of monster of, alien yeah. thing. <laughs> this is an Aunt Beast. Um, 
Yeah, so she says, like, I don't know what to call you, and, and the, 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 the Aunt Beast says, well, you know, what do you think of when you think of me? And she says, well, it's, you're like my mother, and then they say, well, no, you can only have one mother, so I can't be mother. And then she says, well, you're sort of like friend, but more than friend, and then it's, 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 she decides on aunt, and then she says, but aunt. you're, you're – uh, <laughs> <laughs> will you please let me finish this? <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, she, she says, um, and you're sort of a monster and the, and the alien says, I'm not a monster and I'm a beast. And then, so it's, she becomes ant beast, aunt beast. Uh, the place is peaceful, uh, but in the same solar system as the black thing and ant beast and her, uh, and her kind, they fight the darkness. And when Meg expresses surprise at this, ant beast responds, we are called according to his purpose, capital H. Whom and whom he calls, them he also justifies. Of course, we have help, and without the help, it would be much more difficult. Uh, good helps us. The stars help us. Perhaps what you would call light helps us. Love helps us. Um, there's a problem, however, and that's that no one knows how to test her back to Camarots to get Charles Wallace. Uh, Meg suggests that they try to call the three, the three W's, their, their lady, the star lady friends. Mm -hmm. uh, they try, and the ladies appear. Um, and so someone has to go back for Charles Wallace. This debate ensues. Calvin volunteers, but everyone knows he can't go because he would fail. Uh, Mr. Murray can't go because he would fail also. <laughs> oh, yeah, just out of hand. No, no, Calvin, stop. <laughs> Calvin's like, I could go, and they're like, really, Cal? <laughs> it's nice. But... <laughs> and Mr. Murray's like, I could go, and they're sort of like, yeah, you no. We're already just trapped. <laughs> yeah, been, like, you, you we just that. barely rescued you. Uh, so none. So n only one of them can go back, and it's Meg. And Meg just knows. She just knows that it has to be her. Uh, so Mrs. Witch tessers her back to Camazots, uh, and before she leaves, Meg, she tells her that Meg has something that it it does not have. Uh, that is how she will defeat it. Uh, Meg walks back into the terrifying city. She walks back into the round building with the round room and the big, the big brain on the table. And there she finds Charles Wallace. At first she's filled with anger and then it begins to overpower her. And then finally she realizes that the one thing she has that it doesn't have is love. So she tells Charles Wallace how much she loves him. She repeats it over and over again until his own consciousness finally returns. And as soon as he's free, he runs to her. They embrace, and then they test her back to Earth, they, where they find themselves in their own backyard. Mrs. Mr. Murray and Calvin are there as well. And then Mrs. Murray and the twins, uh, and even the big dog, Fort and Brass, run, uh, come running out of the house. They all embrace uh, Mrs. What's-It, Mrs. Witch, and Mrs. Who uh, appear briefly and fill them all with love and joy, and then they disappear. The end. Very well done, Todd. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, so it's uh, it's a narrative. I mean, we were talking a little before we recorded. Uh, you said this is actually kind of a straightforward narrative, even though it gets really weird. The ones that we struggle the most with in doing our summaries, I think, are ones that have like parallel narratives where you got to start bouncing back and forth between scenes. Right. But this one's all pretty much you're following Meg. It, it just gets weird. <laughs> yeah, or things with flashbacks, <laughs> and those become really tricky. But this is really straightforward. It's just like, and then they jump through a wormhole. And then, and then and this then lady turns the into a centaur <laughs> yes. and then they go to a happy medium who looks in a crystal ball and tells them about earth. And then, and then they go to a planet with a bunch of like uh, octopus aliens. Yes. And there's a disembodied brain at one point. In and there. then there's a disembodied <laughs> brain and then it's over. Like, I mean, it's not that complicated. It's just, you know, no. weird. Uh, and I guess the first possible discussion topic that I jotted down is there are times where I felt that there are really interesting big ideas 
and, and like abstractions that uh, Lengel is getting at. But I felt sometimes like the narrative flow was sacrificed for these big ideas. Did you feel that at all? Um, I think I totally agree with you that this is really a story about. I mean, the the story is a vehicle for the exploration of big ideas. In in ways that I don't think always happens in literature. I think sometimes. Uh, an author sits down to write because they have a great story that they want to tell, uh, or they have a character and they say, "I need to tell the I need to tell the story of this character." In this case, I think she said, "I have an idea," and then she she builds a story around an idea. Is right. that yes? We, we today we were discussing um, the short a short story by Jorge Luis Borges, who's a really great 20th century um, writer from Argentina, and his stories are all the same. They're not really. I mean, his is even more extreme in that many of his stories aren't even stories. They're just they're just sort of fictional explorations of philosophical ideas, and I think that that's kind of what we have going on here. Okay. I, I was feeling that. I wanted to make sure it wasn't just me. Um, I, I, and sometimes I even felt like some of these big ideas almost became distractions for the story. <laughs> okay. Um, kind of like the, it was, uh, I think the phrase I used was like a sorcerer's pinwheel when I was talking about this was a producer before. <laughs> like, it's just like I, my head kind of was spinning and I kind of forgot what was actually happening as some of these big ideas were being explored. Well, I, I don't know what, do you know, can you tell me what version of the book, like what edition of the book you read? Uh, I don't, it's up in my daughter's room. I don't have it. Handy. You don't even have it with you? No, no, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I am reading a version yearling Newberry something something. It's a yearling book, uh, but it's a it's an anniversary something edition, and it has an introduction by the author. And she says, um, she says this uh, in the time novels. So, and these are, these are these four or five novels that are in the series. Uh, Meg and Polly ask some big questions. Many of us ask these questions as we're growing up, but we tend to let them go because there's so much else to do. I write the books I do because I'm still asking the questions. And then she says, uh, one, one physicist asks, says that the big questions are, are we alone in the universe or not? That's, that's the big question. And, and so, so I, I think that you're, you're spot on in, in recognizing that this book is an opportunity to ask big questions and explore big ideas. Um, I like Meg's. Um, I like Meg as a character. Right, I don't, so let's break I don't down think that what she suffers. Meg's character. So she's an kind of un- unconfident teenager, uh-huh. uh huh, who is intelligent, but is often struggles to kind of to show her intelligence when she's uh-huh. put on the spot in school or when she's tested on it. Like it doesn't come through. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But I mean, how would you describe her personality? I guess. Well, she she has uh, traits, and they, and these traits come up that are important for the plot at, at different points. But she's impatient. Uh, she's angry. <laughs> she's very persistent. Uh, she's very protective of her little brother. Um, she's also very uncomfortable in her own skin. She doesn't feel pretty like her mom is. I mean, her mom is sort of everything that she wishes she could be, right? Brilliant Smart, scientist, PhD. Brilliant scientist, uh, beautiful. Everyone that knows her is just struck by her 
beauty, but also her, her wit. She's calm in the, like literally calm in the storm. <laughs> this night, I mean, this dark and stormy night where Meg is so worried about the 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 roof blowing off of her house, and her mom is calm, and they and they're able to have these great conversations. And I think I think she sees her mother as, or, or we can read her mother as the woman that Meg potentially could be. Um, but, but she's, she's just kind of rough. Like she's, and, and there are, there are times where she talks both about Meg, uh, Mrs. Murray talks about both Meg and Charles Wallace as that they're different and that they're just, they're just sort of taking their time in, in develop in developing and that that's okay. I think you've nailed it. And I think, um, that comparison with her mom, she feels like, at this moment, it's unattainable, but I think we as readers say, no, she's on this path. She just doesn't see it yet. Yeah. Yeah. There's Calvin a... sees it. Calvin. <laughs> Calvin is whooped, like, pretty pretty quickly by Meg. Um, oh, man, I wanted to... Oh, this is, this is the line. Um, she says... Uh, so... Where are we here? Oh, this is a conversation with her with her dad. Um, and he's talking about Charles Wallace, and he says there's nothing the matter with his mind because Charles Wallace didn't talk until he was four. He says he just does his he just does things in his own way in his own time. And then later, um, she says I'm I'm so dumb, and he says no, you're not dumb. She says uh, he says your mother and I have done a number of tests on you, <laughs> and uh, Meg knew that some of these uh, were IQ tests. And she says, is my IQ okay? And he says, it's more than okay. And she says, what is it? And he says, I'm not going to tell you, but it assures me that both you and Charles Wallace will be able to do pretty much whatever you like when you grow up to yourselves. Just wait till Charles Wallace starts to talk. You'll see. And I love that phrase, to grow up to yourself. And the, and the, these, I, re- I really like the way that, um, that Mr. and Mrs. Murray handle parenting, these children that are unique. Yeah, and well, and I think this book has um, something that's not uncommon to see in stories which have children protagonists. These are not children, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like, but they kind of excuse that within this story by saying, "Well, they're not." <laughs> like, uh, yeah, at least she owns it, you know. Yeah. Uh huh. Where sometimes you read children's literature and you're just like, "There's no explanation for why the kids are the way they are," but they're definitely not acting like kids their age. Right. But in this one, they they give some narrative uh, reasoning for that. Yeah, and I think that she does. A, I think she does a pretty good job uh, with Charles Wallace and with Meg of of creating. I think that they're believable. I think even Charles Wallace, with his like mind reading, is a believable character. In that, I mean, we're, we're sort of led to believe that he's maybe a, the next stage in evolution or something. Right, he's somewhere between normal humans and bag lady centaur. Right. Uh, in that he's able to read people's minds and he he understands just a lot about the universe and he learns quite quickly. Uh, but he's still a child. He doesn't read. Um, and there are some things that he doesn't understand. And there are moments where y- she reminds us that he's a child in the way that he acts, the way that he's – he has um, a tantrum at one point. Yeah, he has a tantrum. So I, 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 I like – both Charles Wallace and Meg as characters, I think that they're believable. And I think they're consistent within this world that's being built. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Um, and there's 
there's one moment when the uh, the bag lady centaurs are explaining the <laughs> that we're calling them the bag lady centaurs. <laughs> the only one of them turns into a centaur. You're right. You're right. One I of think, them we I never actually see. We just sort of the Mrs. W's. I think in the text. The Mrs. Were, W's. Yes, so but I like that. Mrs. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> is bag lady centaur? Is that like a little bit? Um, I don't know. Bag lady? Is that a? Uh, do we still use that term? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I can't remember the last time that I referred to somebody as a bag lady. <laughs> Outside of, but in 1963, <laughs> when this book was written, totally sure. would have. <laughs> okay, um, but the Mrs. W's are explaining the fifth dimension and the Tesseract and this kind of. I mean, we we call it a wormhole today. I think, right? Uh-huh. Uh huh. But there's this moment where uh, they ask, like the kids, "Do you understand it?" And Meg's kind of like, "No." <laughs> and <laughs> Calvin says, mm, "Sort of," and then uh, Charles Wallace says, "I did, but I don't now, and I can't explain it." <laughs> Which I think I've had those moments of insight where like things click and then I uh-huh. try and articulate it and I can't. <laughs> uh huh. So to me, like that was one of the most real moments of like, oh yes, you had the aha moment, but uh-huh. it didn't stick. <laughs> yes. Cool. I I really like these characters. I think Calvin's cool. I love to see his the way that. I mean, Meg is just she's so lonely, and and he is, and they they just they like they meet each other. He likes her and they're friends and, and they just, they sort of accept their friendship and then they're holding hands and they're fine. You know, like there's not a lot of drama surrounding, this is not twilight, right? Like, oh my gosh, does he like me? Does he not like me? I'm, I'm totally obsessed with him. It's just like very frank and matter of fact, the way that they become friends and, and I like it. Yeah. But I think this is another instance where, uh, the story that's being told isn't about romance it's not about no love at all it's a, you know this is no not but it is story. about attachment yes which is really important and family yeah yeah um one of the big ideas that i really quite liked in this is um the union and the common goal of science religion and the humanities uh-huh <laughs> like all of these are working for the same thing in this book whereas i think often we make arbitrary arbitrary barriers between those and yes. people on one side don't like the other side of all, all three of those. Sometimes <laughs> they get into little, um, you know, I don't know. Spats. Yes. Yeah, spats for, and, and they're ang- <laughs> like angrily dismissive of, you know, all sides. And this happens, I think, you know, for those who are firmly in the science camp towards religion, it happens with religion towards science and humanity. Like this happens yes. in every direction. I think every party's uh-huh. guilty. And this book is saying, no, <laughs> All of these are working for the advancement of humankind. Right. And all of these are serving a greater good. Can so I, one of... Yeah, oh, go producer ahead. Andrew has... Yeah. Got, I just want to share a little story. Uh, back when I worked for BYU Radio, I did an interview with an artist. His name is Guy Laramie. And he's... You may have seen his stuff online. He does carvings into books using a sandblaster. And he'll carve, like, landscapes into the tops of a set of books. I have seen this, actually. Yeah. And he was talking about what inspires his art and he he called he said two phrases one was breadcrumbs in the bed but that was his description of he just gets an idea and it and it itches at him until he takes care of it Hmm. and he says i think that happens to everyone you know artists or scientists or or whoever everyone who is touched by life Uh uh-huh and that's what motivates them to do whatever it is whether it's you know express something through art or make a scientific discovery or touched by life. Yes. And and I really liked that phrase for thinking about scientists, you know, working on, on 
whatever it was to, to learn more about life or the universe or, or space or, or the earth or geology and the same motivation going into someone writing something or doing art or, you know, making a sculpture. They're all touched by life and, and motivated by human life and, and life in general uh-huh. to find that good. Cool. I like that. All right, Todd, did you, you, were, you were about to uh, launch into something about this idea of the blending of religion, science, and the humanities, I think. I think it's fascinating that this is one of the most challenged books of the 20th century. And, and it, as you pointed out earlier, it's challenged both by the uh, uh, ultra-conservative right and the, and the godless left, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Paint pay, pay me with some broad brushes, but let's do it. Well, I, I mean, thinking hyper liberal. No, I mean, term, but... I'm, I use those terms in the you know sort of tongue in cheek, right? Yeah, yeah. But we have on on the one side of this argument, we have people saying, "I don't want my children reading this book in in the schools because Madeline Lingle has is is what we call a universalist, meaning she believes in the universal salvation of humankind that God." in his infinite mercy will come down and save everyone regardless of the way that they've lived their life. And that some people will have to suffer, but eventually a loving God will save all of his children. A loving, all powerful God will save all of his children, which is heresy to many Christians because they believe that we will be held accountable for our actions and that, and that some people will make it and some people won't. Um, and then we, you have people on the other side who say, I don't want my children reading this book because it's full of a bunch of Christian stuff. And it talks about Jesus and God. It and quotes scripture. It quotes scripture in like very like straightforward ways. And so I think it's – I just think it's fascinating when I, when I see something that's able to like thread the needle between both of those things and offend both of those camps. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, it, and I wonder how many of – I mean, it's it's clear to me why somebody who is an atheist would would have concerns about their children reading this book in school, uh, but it's not clear to me at all why. I, I just think I wonder how many people who oppose this book have actually read this book. I wonder that about most books that get get on that <laughs> library, American Library Association list. I go over that list with my students sometimes about books that are being challenged uh-huh. uh, to be taken out of libraries and. I mean, I think the first comment I hear every single time I put up the list and I just leave the list on the screen for students to see is why, why is that there? And yeah. you know, they might be talking about a different book. It might be Harry Potter, might be, you know, Huckleberry Finn, uh, you know, might be a wrinkle in time. But the first thing they say isn't like, oh, it's obvious why that one's being challenged. <laughs> it's like, yeah. wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and this one, I just, I just think it's really, really interesting. Um, one of the questions that I have about this book is, well, one thing that stood out to me is uh, when Charles Wallace says oh, – he, he says this thing about – about uh, what is it? Um, why do you think we're happy? Um, every, everything on Kamazots is one mind. It's it, and that's why everyone's so happy and efficient. And Calvin just replies, this is evil. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's really refreshing sometimes to just read – uh, a story in which someone's not afraid to say this is evil and we should fight it. Yeah. And because this book came out in the sixties, I, I didn't put it in the trivia, but some people read that as being um, a criticism of communism 
Right. Uh, but apparently in an earlier draft, like, it, she never mentions communism in this book, but in an earlier draft, she apparently mentioned communism, she mentioned fascism, she mentioned, uh, like, basically every form of government can lead to that kind of evil. Yeah, she mentioned democracy. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I think this is appropriate for the times in which we're living right now. She mentions democracies in which people give up freedom for the sake of security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That pe- that and, and people uh, passages got removed. So she mentions uh-huh. every kind of government we have on Earth, basically, saying that can all lead to something like the evil that is seen on that planet. Yeah. So one of my questions is, what is – like? I think we, we get a sense of this like big uh, darkness versus light battle. But my question is – can we really put a finger on what is the darkness? Like, how would we describe that? You know, can we can we condense it into 140 characters and say this is this is darkness? Subjugation. Yeah, I was, that's something I was going with. Um, enforcing one will on everyone mm-hmm. is definitely part of it. But, like, the battle against darkness on Earth that we see getting played out across centuries, according to Lengel, you know, is, is you know, it gets uh, demonstrated through wars, through conflict, uh, you know, and all the negatives of human history are, are versions of that. But I think subjugation, what our producer Andrew said, is a pretty good summation of what we see as it. I'm going to find this list. There's a list at some point of all of the people that she says have fought... The, the darkness. And this is and where you have scientists and religious figures and here we go. artists all together. Here we go. Mrs. Who's spectacles shone out at them triumphantly, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Jesus, Charles, Charles Wallace said. Why, of course, Jesus. Of course, Mrs. What's It said. Go on, Charles, love. There are others, all your great artists. They've been lights for us to see by. Leonardo da Vinci, Calvin suggested tentatively, and Michelangelo. Uh, and Shakespeare, and Bach, and Pasteur, and Madame Curie, and Einstein, and Schweitzer, and Gandhi, and Buddha, and Beethoven, and Rembrandt, and St. Francis, and Euclid, and Copernicus. Like, that's a pretty broad list. And and to say, like, that da Vinci is fighting the same thing as Pasteur, it it makes me wonder, like, what what's the common thread between all of those people? Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think the common thread is... Uh, progress. Progress through arts, progress through science, progress through new religious ideas. I was going to say and, like, development. The, yeah, the, uh, you know, fighting against stagnation. Um, so on that planet where everyone's doing the same thing, they've been doing the same thing for centuries. There's been no progression ever. So stagnation might be another one besides subjugation. I don't know. I don't know because do we know that nothing has progressed on that planet? It sure seems like it. <laughs> I, I remember a passage where they said basically like, Kids have come out and played this exact same way for over a century now. <laughs> you know, it's, uh-huh. and they've, they been have living, big buildings. they've been living in those houses, you know, doing the exact same thing. And if that's all they do, when would there be progress? Well, progress towards what though? Because, because progress, I mean, they have a lot of what we would consider like progress, which would be big buildings and cities and suburbs. I mean, those are all signs of progress in the, in the 1960s. Aren't they? No, they are, but I, I think you're saying there's signs of progress, but they are not progress in and of itself. Like the, the progress on the individual level is what's being stagnated through the subjugation. Like, like a building constructed based on an old diagram is not. It can be a new building, but it's not. It's not innovation. It's not new, you know, with the capital N new, and it's not an improvement on on 
the concept of a building. It's no Wasili chair, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Which changed the I way we if... think about chairs forever. <laughs> I wonder if it's something maybe even more, like, more basic. And if if Lango would say that it's something like just love, like, like decency and love. So that's what's missing from it? And the love of the individual. That's the thing that's missing from it. It's well, the I mean, one thing that it doesn't have. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the end. I mean, it's kind of like the Harry Potter. Finale. It's exactly like the end <laughs> yeah, of Harry Potter. Like the magic is love. Like that is the solution. Right. Uh, but you're saying the... But the darkness is an absence of love. And that all of those people, uh, Gandhi and Jesus and Buddha and and madame curie and pasteur all of those people were working out of love for the better like the betterment of humanity but not like building roads and buildings but but like furthering the cause of love like the this like goodness and decency and love well tying this back to what andrew uh had said about um like inspiration coming from those who have been touched by life is that what it was yeah Yeah. it's in all of those who are touched by life uh but there's a a passion i think and the passion could be channeled through advancing a scientific cause because you have this idea that we need more on this front we you know there's something on the horizon that we haven't reached yet and just going up against it isn't enough so you know madame curie is going to work until she finds that next step um beyond where all of humanity has ever stepped before and i think you can get the same passion going in arts and i think also in, in those religious leaders. And I think all of these areas, like we said before, like when they have their, their pettiness, I think there's closed mindedness that can happen for every group, you know, where I've got my belief in science. I've got my belief in religion. I've got my belief in that. These are the canon of, of literature. And then you, you close yourself off to everything else. And I think that's where some of this stagnation, some of this subjugation, like you want to subjugate others to your point of view, but also this lack of love for, for everyone else starts to develop. Yeah, it's a, it's an intolerant. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, I mean, yeah. I wonder if it's something like intolerance, and and there and there is also this thing, uh, this 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 really important moment in the book where she talks about like is not the same as equal, and and I think that 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 has to play into this discussion also. What does that mean exactly? That like is not the same as equal. Yeah, that, that having everyone be the same isn't fairness, essentially. Yeah. I have an allegory for this. Go for it. We'll call it my theory. Would, would we call this a theory? This is <laughs> head cannon. We'll call this my theory. So uh, in Poland, there's like a two-week period where you can get like two kilograms of strawberries for the equivalent of three bucks. Okay. Like, like so many strawberries. That's like four pounds. That's like five pounds. Yeah. And way to nail the metrics. Well, it's, it's, it's like, it's between four, four point, it's four and five, five pounds. <laughs> okay. You were yeah. both pretty good. Yeah. I had no frame of reference. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like, it's a lot of strawberries. Like, it's a ton of strawberries. Uh-huh. And I remember, like, having this basket full of strawberries and I grab a strawberry and I'd look at it for a second and be like, this is a perfect strawberry. Like, there's no reasonable way anybody this could possibly... Con- platonic ideal yeah, of like, strawberries. Nobody could, no, <laughs> nobody could possibly convince me that there is anything wrong with this strawberry. And then uh-huh. I'd eat it. And I'd eat another strawberry. And then I'd grab another one. I'm like, well, this is also a perfect strawberry. Like, like picturesque as, as anything. Nobody could convince me that there's a flaw or anything. But it, it wasn't the same as the one. It's, it's not the same. Yeah. 
And, and, you know, so th- in that basket, there'd be, you know, 15, like, utterly perfect platonic strawberries. Like, nobody could tell me that those strawberries weren't the most perfect strawberry in the world. But uh-huh. none of them were the exact same as any of the others. Like, the shades were different. The amount of green on them was different. You know, the sizes were different. But looking at it in that moment, like, you could not convince me that there's a more perfect strawberry. And none of them were more perfect than the others. And so if they had all been the same, I don't know what my reaction would have been. But in my mind, they are all equally perfect strawberries. I have a new goal in life. I want to eat fruit the way our producer Andrew eats fruit. (laughs) (laughs) I think he gets more pleasure. That sounds like a very joyful, a joyful experience. I think there's something, I think there's something to this though. This idea that, um, that all of those strawberries have like equal value in your mind, which is perfect, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's no, there's no way that you could add or detract value from any one of those strawberries, even though they're each individual in their own way. And maybe some of them were bigger and some of them were smaller and some of them were maybe a little bit longer and maybe some of them were a little bit stout, but each one of them in your mind has this equal uh, amount of value, which is delicious and yeah. and beautiful to look at. Yeah, they they embodied strawberry, right? And so I think if, if we if we carry this over then into the novel, what you're saying is uh, maybe when uh, Jefferson says all men are created equal, what he means is equally valuable in this in the sight of God, not exactly alike, and we should um, then create a mold. A mold, right, or force likeness onto everyone. Like, like any any human could embody humanity. Every, I would say every human embodies humanity. Every human is equally valuable, regardless of what they look like or even what they do. And that's, I mean, this is this is getting into Lengel's like uni- Christian universalism, which is to say that God loves all of His children equally. And therefore, all of his children will be saved. All right, Todd. I've loved this, but we're, we're running low on time. And there's <laughs> one question I want to get to, um, which I, it came up more than once in the book. So I think Mrs. Or, or Happy Medium says something like, well, if I didn't get grow so fond of everyone, I'd be happy all the time. <laughs> yes. Something along those lines. But then later on, I want to say Charles Wallace says something about you need, or, or maybe it's Calvin says, you need unhappiness to know happiness. Yep. Um, so I want to get into this idea of the, you know, which I think philosophically we hear this a lot, but why is it important to this text right now? Why, why do you think Langle in all these big ideas that she's thrown out there takes multiple points in the book to kind of address this idea that you can't just be on a droning level of happiness <laughs> that you need to have ebbs and flows. Variety is the spice of life. There you go. I don't know who first said that. <laughs> I think that it's, I mean, in a world in which, in which everyone's always trying to destroy the binary, right? And say, no, it's not about like good and bad. It's about shades of things. And, and it's not about male or female. It's about shades of things. It's not about happiness or sadness. It's about shades of things. Um, like here again, the binary inserts itself and says, no, actually sometimes it is kind of about happiness and sadness and the way that those two things work together for like the good of humanity and that you cannot, 
you cannot eliminate one and maintain the other. And I think, I think that's really important. I think it's really important to recognize and it's really hard to do. What did Levinas, this French philosopher that I've talked about on the show before, he said that the beginning of all thought uh, is pain because when we're really happy, we don't, we don't often take the time to wonder why we're happy. We just sort of enjoy it. Unless it's Andrew eating strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> but when we're sad and when we're in pain, those are the times when our mind starts to work and to ask ourselves, why is it that I feel this way and how could I possibly get out of this? Um, and so I, it's, it's one possible way of, of seeing the value in unhappiness and pain is that it, it's very often – uh, a point of genesis for uh, growth and 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 leads to greater happiness and i and I really do believe that um, people that we only are able to feel happiness in proportion to the amount of sadness that we felt and I think one reason why it matters to this book and the story that she 's telling is that I mean, one of the binaries that we have in the book is, you know, the darkness and the light, you know, it right. versus the, you know, him, I think is the, what would say is the, uh, the other side of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the, the light isn't just pure happiness, right? It's the light involved, right. being in the light and fighting against it involves unhappiness. It involves sometimes anger, <laughs> it involves yes. frustration. Uh -huh. Um, and, the the world, what's the name of the crazy world? The Twilight Zone world? Camazots. It's like Camelot, yes. but it's Camazots. Camazots is droning sameness that right. removes those ebbs and flows of happiness to unhappiness. Exactly. It's just, you, maybe you could call it contentment. Maybe the people there are content, but they're not knowing, you know, these extremes that are part of, uh, I think what Langle's saying, you know, <laughs> the light side. The good life. It's yes. it's the good life. And this gets back to this question that we've talked about before on this podcast, which is like what is the good life? What is is happiness? What like what should we be striving for? And different artists and different authors at different times uh describe this in different ways. And I think that Langle comes very uh clearly on the side of uh that happiness is is living a rich emotional life, which means you take all the good and you take all the bad and it, and it comes together in a way that makes your life deep in, and that that's, that's the good life. And I think going back to this, this kind of triumvirate that she seems to be espousing as part of this, of uh, science, religion, and the humanities, I think uh -huh. those people that get listed as like pushing these fields forward and changing the way we think about these things struggle as part of all of their existence. Yeah, absolutely. Like struggle is part of what is being valued in Langle's worldview here. Yeah. It's not, uh, she didn't invent this by any no. means. Yeah. It's just, but, being, it, but it is being clearly espoused within this story. Right. And, and one of the things that I like about this story is that for as weird as some of the moments are, when you see the giant brain, it really, it really is like pretty tight, uh, metaphor. I mean, like she's in the way that C.S. Lewis, I think, writes, it's not super hard to see where she's going with these things. And she has an agenda. And, and anytime that a writer writes with a super clear agenda like she does, I think it's easy for people to take shots at it. And I think it's probably one of the reasons why this is one of the most challenged books of you know recent decades. But it's I, I mean, she knows exactly what she wants to say. 
and she says it really, really clearly. And, and she uses, you know, crazy uh, ladies that turn into centaurs and, and, and witches that look in crystal balls and, and tentacled aliens to tell a really to, – to, to express a really straightforward message, which is we need to be good to each other. We need to uh, do what we can to, you know, ha- have good relationships and to help humanity move forward and to live rich, emotionally rich lives. But Which to just do that is work. That it's yeah, it does take work, effort, and and disappointment, and, and frustration, it risk, and happiness. Uh, you know, all those are going to be part of that process, right? It involves risk, and I think that that's something worth paying attention to. <laughs> and I, I, in a society right now, especially that is so risk averse, in which crazy stuff is happening all over the world that terrifies us and makes us want to live safer lives and to mitigate risk at every possible moment, it's refreshing to read something that reminds me that real happiness comes uh, along with real pain and that you have to accept the risk of pain if you want to be truly happy. I think um, you said, you know, Langle didn't invent these ideas. Like these are things that have been debated in philosophy for a while, but I think this is a story that, tackles these really big ideas that can be hard to wrap your head around in a way that is meant for children, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, is being presented for children. And maybe kids read it and they say, wow, that was really weird. But I think the ideas are still expressed, even as you might be put off by some of the strangeness of what happens in this odd blend of science fiction and fantasy uh, that exists within this. You're still going to get those those ideas within the story. My son is in fourth grade right now, and they just voted in his class. His teacher let them vote on what book they wanted to read next, and they all voted for A Wrinkle in Time. And so I'm really interested to see what he makes of it. I remember uh, one time in elementary school when our class was able to vote on what book we wanted to read next. The boys formed a voting block, and we did not crack, (laughs) and we read the novelization of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the movie. Because we deliberately fractured the girls' side by, by promoting a few books that we knew someone wanted. But the boys oh, stood for as one strong block. I remember, I remember other times when we did that. When we did that. Oh man, that's awesome! All right, well, the novelization of Teenage Mutant. Obviously, that's where this this uh, discussion needs to end. Uh, that's amazing. So that wraps up this uh, episode. Thank you for joining us. And please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes. And please leave us a review. It helps us with listenership. And it helps us to feel good about what we're actually doing here. <laughs> um, links to things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. And that's also where you can find a list of all of our previous shows. It is an ever-growing catalog. Uh, you can support, suggest stories for us um, or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. You can also uh, talk to all of us on Twitter. We're at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And if you would like to help us out financially, this is the month to do so. Producer Andrew, one more time, what are the deals that they get in our, our big patron push for April? New first-time donors, $3, buys you a topic. Existing donors below the topic-buying level need only increase their donation by $1 to get a topic. And existing topic purchase 
ease <laughs> at this point can increase by a dollar to get two new topics. So please take advantage of that. Uh, we appreciate all the support that we get. Thank you for listening. So long. So long. I mean, it's nope, it is nope. just sitting right there Sorry. in our show notes, right underneath where it says "written by Madeline Lane." You know, I just I reverted <laughs> to our old school way of doing things. That's okay. I mean, not all the way back to our first thirteen episode old school way of doing things. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank goodness. <laughs> all right.